Open Science Talk, the podcast about open science. My name is Per Pippinaspos and I'm joined today by Dominic Tate. And um, who are you, Dominic? <laughs> uh, yes, so my name is Dominic Tate. I'm the head of the library's research support team and also the deputy director uh, for library and university collections at the University of Edinburgh. Edinburgh, yeah. So we're we're in Scotland. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but right now you're at the Munich Conference in Tromsø. So welcome here. Thank you. Um, what kind of an institution is Edinburgh? So we are, um, by British standards, a very large university. Um, we're about forty thousand students, um, nearly sixteen thousand staff, um, about six or seven thousand of which are, are research active. Um, we are a historic university. We were quite old. We were founded in 1583, um, but we're still nowhere near the oldest university in, in Scotland. Um, but we are the largest by some measure. Um, Edinburgh is a fairly small city as well, so uh, the university really plays a big role in the life of the city. You know, everyone knows someone who works there, studies there, that sort of thing. You recently made a rights retention policy. You adopted a rights retention policy as the first institution in the UK, lest I am mistaken. And you also have something called an open research roadmap, which all is available online, of course. So yep. um, I tried to read up to this, but could you briefly explain uh, what is this open research roadmap and how does that relate to your open access policy with rights retention in it? Sure. So the open research roadmap has been around for a number of years now. Um, our university is part of the LERU network. That's the League of European Research Universities. Um, there's a, a working group within LERU that um, worked on putting together a kind of a, a proposed roadmap for open science, as, as they call it. Um, it's made up of eight different pillars of open science, and then it makes something like 41 different recommendations against these different areas of work. Um, within the University of Edinburgh, um, our research strategy group um, asked us in the library to, to, to write a roadmap for, for open, open science. Um, and instead of reinventing the wheel, we 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 had contributed some uh, some work to the to the Larry roadmap. So we adopted that as our own. And what we've done is we've taken the forty one Larry recommendations, and then we have tried to assess our progress against each of these recommendations. Um, so there's sort of a what we call a rag status, red, red amber, green, um, that we've put against each of those recommendations, um, and that's governed by our universities top-level research committee, which is Research Strategy Group. And how were you doing uh, in terms of open access? Um, well, it's, in terms of open access for publications, I think we're doing well. Um, I think if you look at the, the wider roadmap, it's the, the wider kind of open research picture, it's, it's a bit more mixed. Um, it's worth mentioning, actually, that we... Um, we refer to it as open research or open scholarship rather than, than open science at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, that's because we are a, um, a very broad-based university with a large arts, humanities and social sciences faculty. Um, and we, we're very careful not to use the word science where they think it might not apply to them. So we talk about open research because 
we believe that the same principles would apply equally in the College of Art as they might do in, in physics. Yeah, to our Norwegian re- uh, listeners, I could just uh, mention this, that science in a UK setting or Anglophone setting is, is usually the hard sciences. That's exactly uh, it. Yeah. Whereas Wittenskap or in German Wissenschaft is, is more broad. Yeah. Um, I guess... Um, to be the first institution in the UK to make this move towards a right retention strategy, which means that all research articles can in principle be open access if the researchers want so. Uh, how did you prepare for that bold move? Okay, so the, 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 our rights retention policy is, is slightly separate from the, um, from the open research roadmap, which looks at the, the wider picture. Um, we've, we've worked on open access publications for a long time. Um, next year, our original repository will be 20 years old. So, you know, we've, we've, we've had infrastructure in, long, in for a long time. Um, and, you know, to some, some degree, our academics have been uh, making their publications open for, for some time. Um, the policy picture across the UK has been uh, mixed and, and somewhat complicated in recent years. Um, but since 2016, um, we have kind of got to the stage where uh, researchers are routinely depositing uh, versions of their, their papers in our open access repository. Now, they, they may be made open access after an embargo period. Um, some may not actually be made open access at all for whatever reason. Um, but the, the process of depositing the papers had sort of become normalised. And that was because of some changes that had been made in the UK, meaning that um, in order for research papers to be assessed as part of a national um, a national national university assessment program, they had to be deposited in a repository and made open access if possible. So we were starting to look at the new policies coming out of Europe and, and Plan S in particular, which had been adopted by, by the big UK funders. Um, something that we're very much supportive of, but but kind of gave us a problem, really. Um, you know, there was, you know, suddenly there was like another open access policy to be dealing with in this complex landscape. And what we wanted to do was make things simple for, for authors. So um, we started discussions about implementing a rights retention policy um, through a UK-wide consortium uh, called the UK Scholarly Communications Licence, or sometimes it's called UKSCL. Um, that work was led by um, Chris Banks at Imperial College London um, with some some others. And um, that that was really the kind of the starting point for um, for what we wanted to to do. Um, in the end, we, you know, we, we took this through various discussions with the university senior management team. Um, we had a lot of support from uh, our legal services colleagues, and that was really, really important. We, we had a university lawyer who was, who was genuinely scandalized by the way that academic publishing worked, and, and she really wanted to, to, to make a change to the system. And this seemed like a kind of a, a simple legal way for our researchers to be able to comply with with plan s effectively and, and that was sort of the the background to it yeah so plan s helped get you along this line of thinking but um you also did a lot of uh, legal um uh, paving the way work uh, i guess um 
what I read in a blog post by one of your colleagues, Theo Andrew, is that you you actually contacted all the the um, the big publishers that your uh, faculty tend to use, uh, and and said that you will now have an rice retention strategy in place. Uh, how how did that play out? Did you get responses? Yeah, so um, we did get some responses. So we we were advised to. So part of the the legal basis for our retention, our rights retention um, policy, um, is that we have informed publishers of this, um, and and this in, under Scottish law, this is this is an important part of the the process because if we inform someone that we are making this this change that is entirely legal, that we're entire absolutely entitled to do. Um, if um, if a publisher then sort of knowingly coerces an author into um, not meeting those requirements, then technically they they are um, uh, procuring a breach of contracts. I think it, it's called. Um, so the the process for for contacting the publishers was relatively easy. You know, we there was some work in getting hold of of contact details. Um, and then notifications were sent um, by email and also by by recorded delivery. In terms of responses, we have had a few, and actually they've mostly been very supportive. Uh, a lot of publishers have said, you know, that they're they're fully in support of this um, um, this this approach. We have had, um, I think, maybe three responses that have been less favourable. Um, a couple of them could be cleared up. Just, I think it, they were kind of maybe misunderstandings, actually. So it's really kind of just, un, you know, making sure the publishers understanding what where we're coming from with this. Um, so sometimes it was, it was misinterpretation. There was one that was maybe a little bit more, we'll say, aggressive, and I won't, I won't name that publisher. Um, but actually, you know, we've we've come to a, a, a helpful working relationship now. I think you know the tone was very aggressive to begin with. Uh, but we understand one another much better now, and uh, you know we've we've kind of in a better place. You know, it's good that you mentioned that because you actually contacted more than ninety different publishers, and only three of them were sort of negative to begin with, and and now they are all cooperating. Yeah, actually, I think it, I think it's I think it's more like one hundred and sixty that we've contacted now, and there's still only only three three from that. So it, it has been really positive. Um, and actually, you know, th- there have there have been other questions raised, but they've really been on a practical level. It's really been about the workflow and how things work, and you know what needs to happen, and do publishers need to do things differently? And and actually, that's been very very fruitful um, to be able to work with publishers to make you know the author's journey to publication a bit a bit easier. Yeah, and the journey, the final step, you could say, of the journey is that they then upload what's called the author's accepted manuscript in your Chris system or how does it uh, work technically for the author? So actually, as, as I mentioned before, because we were already at the stage whereby authors were required to routinely deposit manuscripts, um, the, the big change really has been on the administrative side about how we, you know, how we manage the manuscripts in, in the, the Chris system, the repository system, and that's for, for the, the library and the administrators across the university that work with us on, on open access. Um, so for authors, it's it's been relatively simple. They kind of just do what they're doing. Um, we do encourage people to put a rights retention statement into their publications. Um, so that's something that needs to happen at the point of submission, ideally. Um, they don't do this routinely. Um, but actually, it's not a problem because it exists in law. It exists anyway, even if it's not written into the paper. 
So it's kind of a bit of a belt and, belt and braces approach there. Yeah. Um, what about the economic aspect to return again to the publisher's side? Because, um, I mean, they 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 make a living of making publications and they they do lots of things with them, uh, the manuscripts of the author. Uh, the most important, perhaps, the visible part, if you compare an accepted manuscript with a version of record, uh, it's it's usually the, the layout. The, the logo is there and different pagination, perhaps more beautiful uh, look and feel. Um, but that's what they keep the rights of, I guess, in this uh, rights retention strategy. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, the... the, the, the the rights retention is around the author's accepted manuscript, um, and it's a means to enable uh, authors to comply with the requirements of the funders to make make the research open access. Now, in in reality, actually, we're signed up to a number of transformative deals with publishers, um, where these so-called read and publish deals, where as well as you know the library buying access to the subscription content, we also buy uh, a right to to to. to publish on an open access basis with those publishers. Um, in reality, that is actually the main route at the moment for uh, for authors at the University of Edinburgh to make journal articles and conference proceedings open access. That seems to be, having looked at the numbers and if referring back to, to Theo's article, um, you know, that that is the main route to open access. I suppose on the economic side, you know, there there is this sort of idea that that green open access you know could somehow affect publisher sales but in reality you know ev- everything everything in physics has been open access for decades and we still buy the journals yeah that's interesting because they have had this archive solution with preprints and and, uh, and all that for 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 decades so, yeah yeah so there still is a market uh, for for the publishers yeah um but if all institutions worldwide did the same as Edinburgh, and, and in fact, UIT, um, the Arctic University of Norway, has a similar um, policy in place, and also NTNU um, in uh, Trondheim um, has adopted this uh, quite recently. If everybody did this, would there then be a market for these um, journal articles that you buy from the publishers, so to speak? I, uh, to be honest, I think I think it's difficult to say. I mean, I, I'm a very pragmatic person, and I think my, my first answer is, well, that's not the case. You know, this is very much a sort of a hypothetical. You know, so like I say, we we've been buying physics journals for 20 years still. Um, I think you know the the business around um, the business around open access publishing is changing, and other businesses other kind of publishing businesses have changed look at the music industry you know see how see how that has changed over over the last two decades and still is able to make huge amounts of money um but by you know in different ways through adding value i mean i was in a record shop in edinburgh the other day and wondering why i was paying you know nearly 30 pounds to own something that i had digitally on a less convenient format but you know there's there's still ways to make money if they they want to do that yeah, so you can have deluxe PDFs that you buy. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. There you go. There's a, there's a, there's a, I think you're developing a business model there already. Dominic Tate, um, this has been really interesting and I thank you very much for coming the, to the podcast. Thank you. Open Science Talk is produced by 
the university library at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. Thanks for listening.